Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm delighted to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Paul LaPena. Uh, he's a neurologist from Greenville, South Carolina, and he's an associate professor of neurology at the Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine, Carolina's campus. Dr. LaPena completed his neurology residency at Indiana University School of Medicine in 2018. As a neurohospitalist, Dr. LaPena's skill set is focused on treatment of neurological emergencies and performing and interpreting electrophysiological studies of the brain and peripheral nervous system. As an associate professor of neurology, Dr. LaPena has won numerous teaching awards, including clinical medicine professor of the neuroscience curriculum in 2019, 2020, 2020, and 2021. For the 2020-2021 academic year, Dr. LaPena was awarded preceptor of the year. For his care towards patient, he was, patients, he was selected to the Arnold P. Gold Humanism Honor Society in 2016. Dr. LaPena has an interest in the relationship between science and faith, in particular, the relationship between neuroscience and the soul, which we'll talk about today, the overreaching claims of science, and the dignity of the human person, to name a few. St. Thomas Aquinas has been a major influence in Dr. LaPena's intellectual and faith journey, which is why we invited him to speak here today. And if you would like to learn more about the Thomistic Institute, um, we're delighted to have Father John Mark as, here as well, so you can feel free to talk to him if you have any questions or want to learn more about the TI. So Dr. LaPena, please take it away. Thank you. Well, thanks for the invitation from the Thomistic Institute. I really appreciate being here. I did a virtual event here in like 2021 during the peak of the pandemic. So I didn't get to be here in person, but it's nice to finally be here in person and especially to meet some of the leaders of the Thomistic Institute. So today I'm going to be talking about a complex, um, complex issues, philosophy of mind, theology, neuroscience, and trying to integrate these things together in hopefully a coherent manner. Uh, there'll be a, a Q&A section after, if time permits, and I can try to answer questions. In addition to that, I'll usually stick around a little bit, like out in the hallway, if you have some personal questions. Often students don't want to uh, ask questions in front of everyone, so I'll stick around if anyone has questions that you'd like to ask me, okay? Um, so I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the scientific revolution. So the scientific revolution started getting underway in the 16th century and really started to blossom in the 17th century. So in, I think it was 1543, Copernicus uh, rejected the geocentric model of the universe in which the earth is the center of the universe and uh, said that he thought the sun was the center of the universe. And he was able to determine that through mathematics. Um, but it was just a theory. The telescope had not been invented yet. But then the telescope was invented, um, and Galileo started making modifications to the telescope and discovered the moons of Jupiter and started to get empirical data that the Earth was not the center of the universe. Uh, Kepler uh, independently developed the um, laws of planetary motion, which further supported this. There was uh, Francis Bacon. So Francis Bacon developed the scientific method, uh, what we use today, what's used here at Johns Hopkins to try to figure out what's true and what's false and form a hypothesis and follow that through and share our results. And all these steps to the scientific method, we find that in Francis Bacon. Uh, Isaac Newton was in the 17th century, so the law of uh, universal gravitation, I believe. Uh, Boyle, uh, Boyle's law, which uh, we learn uh, as medical students as well. Uh, Robert Hooke and the um, development of the microscope, being able to see things that the naked eye could never see. And then William Harvey in medicine uh, started to understand how the heart works and how blood flow um, goes from here to there and how blood travels throughout the body. So there's this incredible amount of information and the printing press had been invented. So this information could now be shared and tested in different labs. And uh, so you start to see this kind of rising of the scientific method and determining what's true. 
uh, in a more, uh, some would argue, in a more efficient way than what the philosophers continued to argue about for thousands of years and what theologians couldn't agree upon, that there seemed to be this kind of uh, coherent and cohesive model of how the universe worked through the scientific method, which was very attractive. One of the major players in this was someone by the name of Rene Descartes. So Rene Descartes was kind of in the middle of all of this. He knew a lot of these people. He was a philosopher. He was a mathematician. And in addition to that, he was a scientist. So he's what we call a polymath. He was an expert in all of these different areas. He was um, traveling through Ulm, Germany. I think it was November 10th, 1619. And a storm came in. So he had to kind of get off the roads, and he found a heated room, and he started to he stayed in this heated room for a couple of days. And when he was there, he had a series of, of visions or, or dreams in which um, he kind of started this quest to integrate uh, philosophy into that exactness of science and mathematics. Uh, in that room, he also invented analytical geometry. So he, uh, this is like very impressive stuff, right? But Descartes, um, he adopts what's called the mechanistic conception of nature, uh, which was popular amongst the scientists at that time. So if you imagine something like a digital watch, a digital watch, if you look at it, you see the hands moving. And you may wonder, well, how do the hands move? Well, they move because of cogwheels within the watch. So the cogwheels will cause the hands to move. And you can wonder, well, how do the cogwheels work? And well, you can take that apart and figure out. And you can keep going down and down to more fundamental um, physics and try to figure out from kind of a bottom up way how things work. And the idea is that the whole universe is like a big watch. It's mechanistic. You can kind of explain how the universe works by looking at the parts and, and come to a conclusion on these things. That's a mechanistic conception of nature. When you get down to those most basic levels, this kind of fundamental level at the level of the atom, things like qualitative properties, subjective properties, intentional properties uh, vanish. There's no such thing. Uh, everything is kind of matter in motion. It's determined by the laws of nature. So this is the idea of the mechanistic conception of nature. Now, Descartes was Catholic, and there are certain Catholic doctrines that he wanted to hold on to, such as the idea that human beings have a soul. So he tried to reconcile this with a mechanistic conception of nature. So he saw the body as what's called res extensa. It's material, it's extended in space, and it's mechanical. But he said that wouldn't really explain the capacities that human beings have. So he posited that there was a mind. The mind, res cogitans, is this idea that there's an immaterial component to the human being. It's non-extended because it's immaterial, and it's conscious. Our psychological attributes, which I'll kind of explain what those are, but our psychological attributes, our mental states, beliefs, thoughts, things like that, reside within this immaterial mind. Okay? And when it comes down to it, according to Descartes, the person is really their mind. Okay? They kind of inhabit a body. Okay. But there was no shortage of criticism, even at, even at his time, when he proposed this um, theory, uh, substance dualism or Cartesian dualism, as we call it today. I think it was in 1641 in the Sixth Meditation. And um, fairly immediately after that, in 1643, Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia wrote back to him with all these objections, right, that he couldn't quite answer. I won't go through all of those, but maybe just a few. So one of the objections is called the mereological fallacy. The mereological fallacy is when you um, ascribe an attribute to a part that only makes sense of the whole. So you ascribe an attribute to the mind, which only really makes sense of the whole person. So a, a kind of a quote to clarify this from Bennett and Hacker, it's not the mind that is the subject of psychological attributes any more than it is the brain. It is the living human being, the whole animal, not one of its parts or a subset of its powers. It's not my mind that makes up its mind or decides. It's not my mind that calls something to mind and recollects. And it is not my mind that turns its mind to something or other and thinks. It is I, this person. So that's the mereological fallacy that he would say that Descartes is guilty of. But in addition to that, there's ethical consequences to this. I remember I was in the hospital a few weeks ago 
maybe like a month and a half ago now. And there was um, a woman who was in her 80s who came in with stroke-like symptoms. And she also has um, moderate to severe dementia, Alzheimer's disease. And I remember overhearing them as I was, um, I'm our stroke director, and I was waiting for her to be transported from a stretcher onto the bed for the CT scan. And I overheard someone just say something like, you can say whatever you want to her. She's going to forget it in three seconds anyways. Um, to which I was very upset about and pulled that person aside and said, look, you know, a, a person, their, their human dignity or what a person is, is not their mind. Like, this is a human being who's worthy of dignity. Someone's dignity is not identical to their capacity to remember things. A person is more than that. Uh, for which she apologized. Um, but yeah, if we just see someone as their mind, our capacities of the mind diminish as we age, or from trauma, or from a stroke, or whatever else. So if we want to say that a person is just their mind, it's very hard to find equality there. Okay. Now, Descartes wouldn't hold that position, I don't think. He, he very much respected the human person. But those are the implications. Um, the other objections are from neuroscience, which is um, my own field as a neurologist and, and a professor. So neuroscience, it has this kind of long history. We didn't, we didn't know a whole lot about the brain. Even when William Harvey was learning about the circulatory system in the 1600s, the brain remained a mystery for a long time. Uh, when I was a medical student, people would donate their, their bodies to science after death, and you would remove the skull, and you would look at the brain, and you would, you would dissect it, you'd look at it, you'd study the structures and all of that. But this wasn't really possible back then because they didn't have refrigeration and they didn't have a means of preserving the body after death. And so the, the brain, and this, this happened to the cadaver that, that I had, when we took the skull off, the brain, because it wasn't preserved properly, was liquefied and it just poured out. Um, and if you look back at like the ancient Egyptians, they didn't really think much about the, the brain after death. It was just kind of the substance that would, they'd put a hook through the ethnoid bone and they'd just, they'd just scrape out the brain and throw it away and preserve the other organs for the afterlife. So the brain was kind of a, a, a mystery. And we started to learn more about the body. Um, I think the Pope in, in 1448 said it's, it's permitted to do um, postmortems. There's nothing theologically wrong with that. So we start learning more about, but it wasn't, it wasn't really until the 1800s where we start to learn more about the brain. So you can draw on like tons of different examples, and, and you all may know some of these at, at Johns Hopkins, but you think about something like Pierre-Paul Broca. So Pierre-Paul Broca followed a man who he didn't know what happened to him, but the man had syphilis, and as a result of syphilis, he had a stroke, and that stroke resulted in expressive aphasia. So right now I'm expressing myself, I'm using words, um, I'm able to express myself clearly and fluently. Um, but this person couldn't as a result of a stroke. And Broca wondered, well, what's the cause of this? So he followed the man for a number of years, and then the man died. And then he removed the skull, and he looked, and in the posterior inferior left frontal gyrus, there was necrosis, there was damage from a stroke. And because of that, he was able to conclude that our capacity for expressive language resides within that area. His contemporary, Carl Wernicke, uh, did the same method. So a little bit later than Broca, but he followed someone who had receptive aphasia. So as right now I'm speaking to you, you're receiving what I'm saying and you're able to process what's being said to you. But there were patients who couldn't do that. So he did the same method. He took their skull off, he looked, and he said, oh, okay, and the you know, superior left temporal lobe, we see damage. That, must, that has to be where receptive language comes in. So if someone has an expressive aphasia, we call that a Broca's aphasia. And if someone has a receptive aphasia, we call that a Wernicke's aphasia, named after those two. Okay? John Hewlings Jackson, who's the uh, father of epilepsy, studied patients who had epilepsy. And same method. You know, he would watch these seizures, which may start in a hand and then move to the arm in what we call a Jacksonian march. It would spread through the body. And again, he was able to look at their brains after death and see that usually as a result of syphilis, there were lesions in the precentral gyrus. And he said, it seems as though there are specific areas in the brain that are responsible for specific functions within the body. We call that somatotopic representation. So we're able to, to see these kind of tight connections, right? You get to Penfield, who's the 
early 1900s, so 20th century. And he and another person in Canada developed the Montreal procedure, which I've been in, where we, someone has epilepsy, for example, and we want to remove part of the brain uh, that's responsible for the seizures. So what you'll do is you'll, you don't want to cut out any delicate cortex. So when you use general anesthesia, you put the person to sleep. But then you, you remove their skull, of course, when they're asleep. But then you wake them up during the surgery. And you stimulate certain areas of the brain. And um, things will happen when you stimulate part of the brain. So if, say, for example, it's temporal lobe epilepsy, and you start stimulating certain areas of the brain, they may have a flashback, a memory, or something like that. They may remember something from childhood. They may hear music that's not really there. So we start to see that memory localizes to specific regions in the brain as well. And on it goes. EEG, Hans Berger in 1924. So we're able to see the electrical activity in the brain. Uh, CT scans in the 1970s with McCormick and um, Hounsfield. We start to be able to see someone has a stroke. We're able to get a picture and see where it is. MRI in the 1980s and 90s. And then functional MRI in the 90s and kind of early 2000s. Where before we just had these static images, we were able to just kind of look at the brain and say, oh, there it is. But we couldn't see the brain working. We couldn't see it in its dynamic state. And then functional MRIs were invented. So you could have someone go into a functional MRI and have them do certain cognitive tasks. So say, for example, you um, have them come in and you want to study where in the brain does empathy reside? So you can show them some pictures, and they can react in an empathetic way, and then you can see what areas of the brain light up. And then you say, oh, that's empathy, right? So you can start kind of looking and honing in on certain areas and tie those to our psychological attributes. So this, um, they think, kind of has implications. So that Descartes said that our psychological attributes are in this kind of immaterial component, our mind, but then um, neuroscience has said, no, no, that's not right. There they are, right there. We can point at them. The psychological attributes are in the brain, okay? So there's been kind of this shift of psychological attributes. So hopefully that's clear. I'd say as a neurologist, you see this, right? So someone has certain psychological capacities, uh, mental states, and they have a stroke, and they lose those capacities due to physical damage. Someone, for example... Um, one of the terrible parts of my job is I have to declare brain death. That's one of my major jobs. And with, with brain death, it's, it's really, it, it's difficult, but even if the person's heart is still going and their lungs are still going, albeit by way of machine, um, if their brain is dead, the person is, is dead, period. Um, even if their other organ systems are still working. So when we see brain death, we see, by legal standards, death of the person. So it's very easy from a clinical standpoint to see, well, essentially, we're just our brains, right? All right. So um, as a professor, there's some similarities here. So when I teach neuroanatomy, for example, we're looking at the material causes of our capacities. So we talk about language, and we say the left inferior frontal gyrus. Um, we, we, sit, we kind of look at them. We say, those are, those, that's the matter involved. That's the material cause of my being able to speak to you. Okay? And then we can also look at the efficient causes of things. So, for example, we can look at the neurophysiology of what's happening. These are the material causes. But then if you look in with, within that material thing, say the frontal lobe, you'll see that there's uh, neurons, and the neurons function in a certain you know, particular way through sending signals along an axon or something. So we say that's the efficient cause. It brings about, it's that which brings about the action through that material entity. So we say there's material cause and there's efficient causes. Um, but then, it, kind of in reflection, I say, is this an adequate explanation of our human capacities? Can we re be reduced to the material and efficient um, constituents of our being? I was recently at a... Um, colloquium, which is like a gathering, a conversation in the Latin. So we, I, I met up in um, Bar Harbor, Maine with some theologians, some philosophers, scientists, um, this really group of phenomenal intellectuals, and we all sat around a table and just like, you know, talked about things. It was, it was wonderful. And um, there was this man there from Italy who was a scientist and an engineer, 
And um, he told the best stories I've ever heard. You know, we'd, we'd sit around, we'd have a drink, and he would tell us love stories. And he was just a romantic. When he, when he married his, uh, his wife, who's a speaker with the Thomistic Institute, he, he essentially, like, rented out half of Italy for this wedding. And it was just like this... He, he got this choir that would refuse to do weddings, but he convinced them to do it. He searched the world for this engagement ring. I mean, it just looked, every man there looked awful compared to this guy, right? And he just told this long love story, right? But uh, my kids were there, which was really cool. But what if my kids asked me, to say, Dad, that was a lovely love story we heard, but I'd really like to hear the love story on how you met Mom. And um, I said, all right, kids, buckle up. I'm going to tell you that but I'm only going to use material and efficient causality to do it, okay? So I'd say something like, let's see if I can do this. So I'd say, like, we were in Colorado, and the sun, it reflected off your mother's face, and the light rays hit my retinal ganglion cells. And from the retinal ganglion cells, an action potential went through my optic nerves, and it went uh, to the optic chiasm. And then from the optic chiasm, it went to the optic tract, and then the lateral geniculate nucleus of the thalamus, and then from there, it went into the superior and, optic, uh, superior and inferior optic radiations to the primary visual cortex. And then, kids, listen. From there, it went through the ventral stream to the fusiform gyrus, where I saw your mother's face. And then, it spread, and, and my caudate nucleus, and my, my uh, striatum, my uh, anterior cingulate gyrus, it lit up. It depolarized like it has never in my entire life. And then from there, the right insular cortex became more active, which increased the sympathetic tone within my body, which uh, from that we had secretion of, of various catecholamines from my adrenal gland, which increased my heart rate, which increased the mean kinetic energy within my body. And I felt what the less educated call warmth, you know? And... Uh, you know, that would be a really terrible explanation. And they would roll their eyes and say, Dad, you know, what are you talking about? It's like, okay, well, all right, well, let's try it at a cellular level. Uh, let synaptic transmission. Um, you know, this would be a very inadequate love story, right? Um, explaining something through material and efficient causality doesn't really get you where you need to go. My kids would ask, but Dad, you know, what's, what's the essence of love? What's the meaning of love? What's its purpose? What quality is about mom? You know, do you really what that, that what drew you in? And I say, you know, you need more STEM education. You know, those things don't exist in the mechanistic conception of nature. So we ask, you know, why is this inadequate? Why could this be an inadequate explanation for our human capacities? Well, it's very simple, actually. For two things to be identical, all the properties need to be the same. Okay, so for something to be the same as something else, it needs to be the same as it. Okay, this is very simple. However the properties of love and the properties of the neural correlates to love are not the same. So they cannot be identical. If we expand upon that, if we look at physical things like neurons, they're quantitative. They have mass and they take up volume. They're objective. They're completely open to the public third-person perspective. So we can see it on a functional MRI. We can point at it. We can look at an EEG. We can look at these things. And physical things are determined. They're completely determined by their antecedents, what comes before it, the physical event that comes before it, like a row of dominoes. But what about mental states? What about emotions, beliefs, desires, acts of the will, thoughts? I can have various thoughts. I can have analytical thoughts. I can have thoughts of discernment. I can reflect upon things. I have thoughts in regards to planning and problem solving. These things, although physical things are quantitative, they take up mass, they have volume, what about something like a concept? I can go out on the street, and we actually saw a dog when we were driving here running around freely, and um, it was a small dog. But I can also form the concept of a large dog, right? Or I can see a small dog, and I can see a large dog. Um, and I can imagine a small dog, and I can imagine a large dog. And these things have different sizes. They're, they're quantifiable. But the concept big dog and the concept small dog have no sizes whatsoever because concepts don't have a size. They can't be measured, okay? So that's a difference, right? Quantitative things, again, they have mass and volume, but we have qualitative experiences of what it's like. 
So for example, the taste of chocolate. We know what chocolate tastes like. If you um, try to describe to someone who's never tasted chocolate what chocolate tastes like through only third-person terms by explaining the neuroanatomy, explaining the efficient causes, you can explain every single physical fact, and the person will have absolutely no idea what chocolate tastes like until they try it. But if you already had a complete physical knowledge of a thing and you've learned something new about it, then that thing cannot be physical. Okay. In addition to that, as material things are completely objective, this is not so with the human person. The human person has a subjective element that's real. So for example, um, my wife. I, no matter how many third-person facts I know about my wife, I could know every bit of her um, neurophysiology and her anatomy. It wouldn't help me at all unless she told me who she was through her subjective experiences. A complete physical knowledge of my wife would not permit me to know my wife in any meaningful way whatsoever. Okay? I mean, it'd be somewhat meaningful. That may be an overstatement. But um, if I kind of reflect upon that subjectivity even further, there's this idea of um, standing back from something. We can stand back from our experiences. And this is very interesting. So, for example, um, we have these various qualitative experiences, right? So uh, the taste of chocolate, looking at a sunset, hearing a beautiful symphony. Like these are qualitative experiences. But we can step back from those qualitative experiences and kind of look at them and discern about them and reason about them, see what we like and what we don't like about them. This all comes through, I, I have to teach neuroanatomy a lot, and this comes through our sense experiences, these physical things, right? So we, we touch things, we see things, we hear things, and we have these very complicated pathways. I don't know how many of you do neuroscience, but for example, the cortical spinal tract or, or the visual pathway that I mentioned, these, in, these kind of sensory organs in which everything kind of we know is contingent upon this, entering through the senses, right? And when these things kind of enter into the senses, um, many of these things will enter into, as Augustine says, the fields and roomy chambers of memory, this vast repository of images. I can remember faces from my childhood. I can remember friends. I can remember family. I can draw up images of the time that I went to the beach. I can remember sensations, um, stubbing my toe, breaking my toe on the first day of medical school before class started. I can like remember that pain, right? Um, emotions, I can remember times that I was joyful or angry or sad. These things are all associated with prior experiences that are in those fields and roomy chambers of our memory, that vast repository. And I can stand back from those things. I can summon them forward. I can demand these memories come forth and they present themselves to our intellect. I can summon the past emotions of anger, yet I can remain dispassionate as I ask that to come forward. I can call forth knowledge, like when you're taking an exam. I can call forth all those things that you've learned through your PhD or, or your master's degree. You can call those things forth and organize them and contemplate them. In the act of mindfulness, I can watch thoughts float by like clouds and gaze upon them. I can reflect upon them. Um, I can observe them, reflect, I can contemplate. So I stand atop this, and I, re I can redirect my emotions as they come forth, and my thoughts, and I can achieve a good end. For example, by doing something like mindfulness, it can improve upon one's mental health or reduce the amount of migraines that someone has, right? However, these characteristics are not present in the neurocorrelates. For example, a neuron or an action potential is not trying to achieve anything. It's just firing, right? There's no meaning or purpose or deep intention behind it, but there are behind our cognitive tasks. Which raises an interesting philosophical point. So the transcendence of our intellect and will. So if you, if you say, yeah, yeah, but I, I could map that out. When you're doing an act of contemplation, I can put you in a functional MRI, and I could just be like, there it is, right there. But if I was in the functional MRI and you showed me a picture of contemplation, the areas of my brain involved in you know, the neural correlates involved, I can then look at them on the screen and begin to contemplate them. I can again rise above them. So you can't reduce the person. If, um, if, X trans if you have something that transcends X, that thing that transcends X cannot be part of X. 
If I transcend my central nervous system, I can't be one of the things in my central nervous system. Okay? And there's many more problems. Again, physical events are determined. From the Big Bang, you have these physical antecedents, all kind of like a row of dominoes. But this is not how human beings are. We have intentionality. Love is directed beyond itself towards another. There's a teleological component to it. There's semantic content. There's meaning behind it. Um, there's freedom of the will. And neuroscientists think that they've disproven that, but they certainly have not. Okay? So there's, there's a will which is free. This is not how the physical cosmos works according to a mechanistic picture. And just like Descartes committed the neurological fallacy, so does the neuroscientist who localizes our psychological attributes within our brain. If you, for example, are in a relationship and you decide to break up with your boyfriend and you say, hey, it, it's, not, it's, it's not you, it's my ventral medial, um, ventral medial prefrontal cortex that's breaking up with you, right? It's not depolarizing like it once did. My oxytocin levels have had a precipitous drop on each date, um, right? So it's not your oxytocin that's breaking up with your boyfriend. Um, it's you, right? You, the person, the whole person, okay? Um, so this is also called the homunculus fallacy, where you say something like, the hippocampus remembers, um, the occipital lobe sees, like a homunculus is a little person. You're saying like every little area in the brain is a little person, right? But I mean, no, right? You are the person. This has profound ethical implications, just like with Descartes. So, so say, for example, um, you know, I have just, I can think of one patient who has this terrible form of intractable epilepsy called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And when I first saw her, she was having over a thousand seizures a day. And um, she had severe intellectual impairment where you couldn't really tell if she could really engage with the world around her, if she could do things like reflection, observation, contemplation, and things like that. Um, and, you know, her parents came just trying to get advice on, on how to do it. And, and, you know, she had been from doctor to doctor to doctor, and no one really gave them the time of day. They just kind of threw medicines at them, but, but didn't really ever listen to the parents and their concerns. And I can't help but to think that sometimes in medicine, you reduce the person to their organ. So you reduce the person um, to a brain or something like that. And if your brain is not equal in capacity to other people's brains, then it's very hard to find equality and to treat someone how you ought to treat that person. Okay. So we often, for example, if you maybe toured, if I went on a tour of Johns Hopkins, you could maybe show me some beautiful pictures. I don't know if that's true, if there's any beautiful pictures here. But what if you brought me on a tour, maybe to the Baltimore Museum, and, um, you know, with every single comment, I just said something like, you know, you say, look at this painting, Dr. LaPena, what do you think? I say, well, you know, the painting is composed of, um, I don't know, calcium and silicon oxides, um, and I just kind of comment on the physical makeup of the painting, right? And that would be absurd, right, if I didn't appreciate the beauty of the painting, okay? But for some reason, sometimes we think that's okay to do with a person who's made in the image of God, that we can reduce them to their material constituents. And that's not okay with a painting, but it's often okay with a human person, right? We ought not to do that, okay? It's very important to know that correlations do not equal identity, so, for example, as a neurologist, stroke is very often associated with high blood pressure. But stroke is not high blood pressure. They're two different things. One's the cause of the other or is one of the causes of it. Okay? But they're not identical. So neuroscience is always going to continue to find correlations between mental states and brain states. But identity can never be established if the properties are not the same. So in summary on that section, if humans have qualitative, intentional, and subjective properties, and material things do not have those properties, then a human being cannot be purely material. Okay. Um, I have a section on the possibility of if the brain generates the mind as an epiphenomenon or as a, an emergent property or substance. I realize if I go over that, I will go over time. So I'm going to skip that, and you're welcome to ask me during the, during the Q&A. Okay. I'd like to kind of talk about how we can account for our human experiences more holistically, uh, given what I've said, and kind of talk about all those things that include the richness of being a human being. Okay? So we talked about the material causes. So there's the material causes of me speaking to you right now. There's the 
inferior or the posterior inferior left frontal gyrus, which gives me the capacity to to express myself. There's the cortical bulbar tract, which innervates my cranial nerves, which allows me to move certain parts of my mouth, my tongue, my pharynx, and things like that. Um, there are many things, all the cranial nerves involved, my tongue, all these things that allow me to articulate. So those are the material causes involved. But in addition to that, there's the efficient causes. So we can look and we can say, you know, the neurons are doing this or that, they're firing, this is the action potentials, and these are the pathways in which they go. So we can talk about the efficient causes of things. And again, all those things are readily available through our instrumentations. We can look at those things. Um, so functional MRIs will often show those things. But I don't think, like, for some reason, the public is really impressed with this. And um, it's something that's really baffled me. And maybe it's because of that kind of Cartesian conception that many people hold. But there are these functional MRIs. But if I, like, walked up to one of you and said, like, when you guys are thinking, do you think your brain is doing something? Right? Yeah, obviously it's doing something, right? Do you think that when you're doing some particular cognitive task that there's a more specific region within your brain that's correlated to that cognitive task? Yeah, of course it is, right? So when I see these kind of popular neuroscience papers that are published, and they come to my email all the time, or like the algorithms or whatever have like made them appear in my inbox all the time. And it, it's, to me, it's the equivalent of saying like, scientists have discovered that you use your legs when you walk, right? <laughs> this is not surprising. Um, or like, and often it's, you know, in more depth, right? It'll be like, you know, did you know that when you're walking, your tibialis anterior um, dorsiflexes your foot? And it's like, no, I didn't know that, but okay, you know? So when I see these studies, like scientists have localized love in the brain, none of it is surprising. Of course, there's neural correlates to our psychological attributes. No one thinks otherwise. What is not understood is the difference between necessity and sufficiency. For example, it's necessary for my car to have gasoline in it so that I can drive around. However, that's not sufficient. I need other parts of my car to be able to do this. And this is the point that like, someone like Aristotle and Aquinas would want to raise, that to fully explain anything, you can't just posit material and efficient causality. You need to posit additional causes. So this is, gets to the four causes. So if you look at this like table right here, if you really want to know what that table was, you'd need to uh, explain it in four causes. What's the material cause? It's wood. What's the efficient cause? What brought it about by way of action? So you'd say a carpenter, like my uncle is here. He, he built, you know, we say he built this table, right? Uh, he did not. Um, so you'd say the carpenter brought it about. But then you'd have to ask two more things about it to fully understand it. You would need to say, okay, well, what's the purpose of the table? You'd say the purpose of the table is to sit at, to eat at, to study at, or something like that. So you'd need to add what's called the final cause of the table, the purpose of it. And then last, you'd need to name the formal cause of it, the form. You'd describe the shape and contour of the table. And those four things together would give you a full explanation of what a table is. And Aristotle would say that this is true of all of our human capacities. This is true of all things that are natural. Um, now, with some nuance, it's, this is an artifact, so you have to kind of describe it differently than you would describe something like a living human being. Okay? So... If I um, kind of talk about that a little bit further, um, what, is, you know, what does he mean by a formal cause? Because I think this is the way we ought to explain our human capacities. Aristotle and Aquinas, I think they would say the formal cause or aspect of speaking to you entails my thoughts and my intentions. It's using my intellect. I'm able to organize and unify and direct my thoughts in a meaningful way with the, intent, with the intention of communicating to you. So through this process, um, I was able to get these potential things, potential things that I was going to be able to say during this talk, and I've made them actual. And this is through the formal cause, okay? And all of this gives my talk a certain shape and contour through using my intellectual capacities, okay? Um, it gives my talk a certain essence. And then there's the purpose of my talk. So the exchange of ideas or whatever that may be, right? So to adequately explain my speaking to you, I need to posit the material cause, the efficient cause, the purpose of the thing, which is the final cause, as well as kind of the form, the shape, the contour, which is the formal cause, which is brought about through my intellect, okay? 
This single act of speaking to you entails four aspects, therefore, the material, the efficient, the formal, and the final. And this is not the interaction of two substances contra Descartes. Rather, these are four aspects of one event happening in one substance, this person. Some of those things are material, and some of those things are immaterial, because they do not have the same um, properties as material things. And sometimes people get nervous when we talk about something immaterial, especially as scientists. But I would just say that, you know, there are, we know that immaterial things exist. When's the last time you tripped over a proposition? When's the last time you hit your head on the general theory of relativity? Um, if your significant other asks you to go to the grocery store and pick up three facts, you're not going to be able to do that, right? Um, you're never going to find the law of non-contradiction in your test tube, okay? Um, you know, things like mathematics. Many mathematicians think that numbers are real things. They're not physical things. It's not something we kind of conjure up to make sense of the universe, but they're real things that exist that are discovered rather than made up to explain physical phenomena, that they really exist, that the laws of nature are real things such as like almost a, a platonic form in which we discover the laws of nature. We don't make them up to explain how, how physical processes work. Okay, But these are not material things. Okay. So there's a lot more to this, and it, it takes a long time to come to comprehend kind of the position of Aquinas. Um, I'm sure all of you have a, a copy of the Summa Theologiae at home. Um, but So in the Prima Pars, which is the first part, question 75, article 1 and 2, Aquinas talks about these things in much greater um, depth. Perhaps maybe just to summarize some of those things in question 75, article 1 and article 2. So it's a rejection of the mechanical conception of nature, this, I, this kind of idea that I've been talking about, the mechanical conception of nature. And this was not foreign to people like Aristotle because this conception of nature was also present in what's called the atomists, the ancient Greek philosophers who thought everything was made out of these little invisible things called atoms, right? This was over 2,000 years ago. Um, there's all these things we can't see called atoms, and that's responsible for the kind of the other things that we see. So Aristotle was very aware of this view that's present today and rejected it. So um, Aquinas, he adopts an Aristotelian notion of what's called substances, that all the natural things in this universe are composed of form and matter. So matter represents the potential of a substance, and the form represents the principle of actuality. So you have matter, potential, and then you have that uh, this kind of other part of the substance called the form, which is the actuality. It, it draws out the potentials for matter to make the thing that it is to become. Um, and this may sound, this seemed very odd to me when I first kind of was introduced to the Thomistic conception of things. It seemed very odd to me. Um, but I would suggest that it's, it's actually interesting. I've been, there are some speakers within the Thomistic Institute that talk about this further, like Robert Kuhns, who um, studies the metaphysics of quantum mechanics. And if you look at people like uh, Robert Kuhns, if you read his work, if you read Heisenberg, for example, um, who is big you know, in the kind of development of quantum mechanics, if you uh, read, he passed away a couple of years ago, but John Polkinghorne, this is actually how they all interpret quantum mechanics that at this kind of lowest, lowest level, you have something that's kind of pure potentiality. But then it's like, how does that become something? How does it receive intelligibility? So this idea that these things at the most basic level kind of receive intelligibility, um, that it's kind of this information-bearing pattern that kind of enters into that pure potentiality for the thing to become that which it's intended to be, that it directs kind of the matter to become that which, which it's intended to be. So Aristotle and Aquinas would just think everything just kind of is that. Like that's all substances are made of form and matter. There's no such thing as matter that's apart from form. And there's no such thing as form that's apart from matter with exception to angels. Um, just on a side note. Okay. So the material aspect of our bodies, our neurons and such, have certain potentials that are actualized by our formal aspect, which Aristotle and Aquinas refer to as the soul. But this is very different than the idea of the soul of Plato and Descartes, where Plato thought that the soul was this kind of um, immaterial, kind of real you that longed to escape from the body, okay? Descartes, a lot of people kind of say the ghost and the machine. That's this kind of ghostly thing that's somehow um, contingently but not necessarily related to a body. 
okay? And the real you is, is your soul. This is not what Aristotle and Aquinas would think. You are your whole substance, the material components as well as the form, okay? That makes a unified you. So it's not synonymous with those views. It's not an emergent substance or a property. A soul not, doesn't even need to be immaterial with exception to humans, Okay, so all living things would have a soul according to them, but they're not an immaterial thing. It's just that which actualizes the potentials of things. Um, but human beings, according to Aquinas, as well as Aristotle, are immaterial given the capacities that we have, the properties of our intellect, the abilities of our intellect to do what it does, um, allows that kind of component of us to be immaterial and what we call subsistent. It has an activity through itself. Okay? So that's like a summary, a very inadequate summary of Aquinas and Aristotle and these things. Like, I don't have a lot of time, so. Um, so if I just may say, like, a few other things about science and neuroscience. So um, it's important when we consider, like, I remember when I was, um, when I was in high school, I had the, um, like, the privilege of being in this accelerated science program where I got to take, like, organic chemistry and um, got to do some, some physical chemistry biochemistry uh, as a senior in high school. And I really loved it. I just, science is like, it's just so wonderful. It's fascinating. I spent a lot of time on the stuff. But uh, no one in my family had ever gone to college. So I was just like, I'm just going to like, you know, um, learn this stuff and then I'm going to get a job at Home Depot. And that was like my definite plan. And, um, but, you know, I ended up, I got an athletic scholarship to go to college. I ended up going to college. And, um, you know, when I, was, when I was there, it was like I never thought about things deeply. I didn't know anything about college. When, um, when I got accepted into college, apparently there was this orientation process and um, where you go like register for your classes and stuff like that. But I didn't have email, nor did I have the internet. So I did not know of this. Um, so I showed up to college and I showed up there uh, for for. Uh, acad or athletics, and I was like at uh, camp doing athletic stuff, and then school started, and uh, the semester starts, and I'm just sitting in my dorm, and like uh, my roommates are like departing for a few hours and coming back, and I'm just I'm listening to the Red Sox games, and um, so I'm like this college thing isn't so bad, and then like after some time, my academic advisor uh, Katie she called me, and she said, hey. It, is this Paul? Yeah, yeah, this is, this is Paul. How you doing? And she's like, you don't have any classes. What are you doing? So she called me into her office, and she's, she's like, well, what do you, what do you want to do when you, when you grow up? I said, well, I, I haven't thought about it. Uh, I was going to see, as a runner, I said, I'm going to see how this running thing works out, maybe like professional running. And she's just like, wow, I don't think that's going to work out for you. <laughs> so she said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, you want to be a lawyer? I said, oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, you want to be a teacher? I don't know, maybe. Uh, you want to be an engineer? No, I'm not cut out for that. Um, do you want to be a doctor? And it's like, oh, you can just do, you can just do that? Like, you, can just, you can just sign up for, for that? And uh, she was like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put you in the pre-med track, and we'll just kind of see how it goes. I don't know where she had that confidence in me. Um, so she kind of, she signs me up, and I start, so I, I walk out of there, and I'm just like, all right, cool, <laughs> I'm a doctor. Um, and uh, it actually worked. So, um, but I remember kind of entering into these classes and asking, learning the sciences, but asking all of these kind of deeper questions, like we learned the laws of nature. What is a law of nature? You know, if I look through a telescope, I, I don't see them. Uh, what, what is it? Is it um, explaining how material things work? Is that what it is? Is it an independent thing, like a platonic form? And no one knew the answer to any of these things. We're just like, well, we just know that they are. Um, are they just brute facts? Do they really exist? Um, so these were these kind of deep questions that I started to develop. I wasn't a theist at the time. Um, well, kind of like a general theist. I wasn't an atheist, but I wasn't a Christian. Um, and these kind of questions kept kind of coming. Eventually, I, I become a Christian in college, but um, and start asking even more deeper questions um, through the light of faith. And then in medical school, again, these kind of deeper and deeper questions about the brain and our human capacities and how to explain these things. But through that process, I learned the limits of science. Um, it's wonderful. But science depends upon other things, okay? So the laws of logic, for example. 
Anytime we do science, we're relying on the laws of logic. So the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, the, the, um, the law of identity, these types of things. Science can only operate because of those things, but science doesn't determine those things. Our sensory input, as a neurologist, I know how every, our knowledge comes in through the senses, but how our senses can falter. As a neurologist, I see people with delirium all the time who I walk in the room, they, they think they're on a cruise or they think they're in you know, Finland or they have no, you know, they're not processing things correctly. The law of causality. So for example, as a physician, I see physical signs and symptoms. And because of those physical signs and symptoms effects, I know that there must be a cause for those effects, those symptoms. So I work backwards to figure out the disease state, right? So um, that's kind of how we operate, right? We see effects, we work to the cause. But it's not science that tells us that when we see effects, there must be a cause. That's a philosophical idea. Um, science is able to discover those causes often, but it doesn't make it so that there is or must be a cause, okay? Again, that's a philosophical assumption. That the universe is intelligible, right? I mean, this is a great mystery, that our science, our mathematics, um, actually correspond to how the world actually is, right? Science doesn't make the world intelligible. It finds that the world is intelligible, right? But did not make it so. Is that prerequisite that makes science possible to begin with, okay? Um, you know, and, and, and so, it, so it goes, right? Ethics, um, we've seen the nightmares in the 20th century of when ethics and science are not done together. But science doesn't make things ethical, right? Right? Science operates within an ethical framework, but science doesn't make things ethical, right? Okay. Um, faith. There is a scary amount of um, fabricated... Uh, I was reading the journal Science, and it was, I think, recently, and it looked at the year, two, I think, 2020, and 24% of the medical literature is fabricated or plagiarized. And in neuroscience, it's the highest of any field. In neuroscience, it's about one-third, right, um, studying the year 2020, right? So one requires faith. When I administer patients' medications, um, when I am kind of all that neuroscience that is developed in places and, and the clinical trials, we, we assume it's done ethically. So we're applying that through faith to our patients, that people have done the job that they're supposed to do, right? So it's just to say that there needs to be a broader perspective. Yeah, we can find truth through science, right? Lots of truth through science. It's wonderful. But we can also find truth through poets and through novels that we read, through literature, um, through priests. Um, we can uh, find truth in the Bible. We can find truth from all different areas, right? So it's not just science that has a, a kind of a dominance on truth, okay? In addition, not everything can be reduced. A poem, these are kind of some stock examples, a poem cannot be reduced to ink. Poems are not made of ink, right? They're made of stanzas, right? Um, a painting, like I said, it can't be reduced to silicon dioxide, right? It represents something greater than that, okay? The legal system can't be reduced to brick and mortar. It's reduced to laws, right? It's not a physical thing, okay? When we appreciate music, that's not just the vibrations of air and the corresponding neurological response. Okay, there's something more to it. And love is not just oxytocin and dopamine. Okay, so we need to think more broadly. Not everything can be reduced, especially the human person. So neuroscience is a tremendous amount of gratitude for neuroscience and the job of neuroscience. Everything that I do is built on people like Broca, Warnicke, Babinski, uh, Charcot, um, Charles Sherrington, um, John Eccles, all these guys. I can do my job because of these giants who came before me. Okay, and I'm deeply appreciative of that. But the job of neuroscience is it, it's to, you, you know, you ask these, these kind of scientific questions and, and you, through the scientific method, you, you kind of discover truths about these things. You find kind of the molecular, you, you find the biological chemical substratum that allows us to have the capacities that we have. But neuroscience is not meant to make metaphysical claims on human nature. It's not within the methodology. Okay? Not everything can be kind of reduced, okay, what we call ontological and causal reductions, okay? There's, there's great consequences to those things which I've discussed. So I'd like to just briefly, in kind of the closing remarks, I'd just like to, I've kind of criticized various views. I've presented the Thomistic conception. 
um, of the human person. But now I'd like to present a very holistic view of the human person um, in way of kind of Catholic theology and biblical theology. When we start, when we look at Genesis 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Catholic tradition has a very rich human anthropology. Um, it often ties, we ask like, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And you read something like Augustine or you read Aquinas and the tradition of the Catholic Church. It's often tied to the rationality of the person, that they have a rational soul. Um, that they have these intellectual capacities, okay? So they have this rational soul, and that's what it means to be created in the image of God, that you have, like, God has rationality, God has a will, God has an intellect, so do we in being created in the image of God. However, um, well, and even, I, I, there's a fascinating part with Augustine where he's in book 10 of the Confessions where he's just marveling at the ability of our, our intellectual capacities. He said, you know, people go and they, they look at sunsets and, and they look at uh, beautiful scenes and all of these types of things, right? And they just marvel at these things. But he notes that when we look into the interior, the capacities that we have in being created in the image of God, we should also marvel at those things, that we have an intellect, that we have a will. I mean, it's really amazing what the intellect can do. So, for example, when I reflect upon this idea that I have an immaterial component to my being, when I reflect upon that, I think, you know, um, everything that is and everything that has certain attributes has a reason for why it is and the attributes that it has. I have an immaterial component to my being, which is just fascinating because I say, what, what's the cause of that? What's the explanation, the principle of sufficient reason? What's the explanation for that kind of aspect of my human nature? Well, it couldn't have come from a material thing because two material things or multiple material things interacting can't produce an, an immaterial thing. That's not a possible thing that can occur. So therefore, if it didn't come from matter, it came from nothing. But what has the infinite power to bring something in existence from nothing? Well, it's God, right? Um, the attributes, right? If there needs to be an explanation for the attributes that I have of a will and an intellect, right? This couldn't come from other immaterial things like numbers, which are causally... Um, they don't have any efficacy. They can't do anything, right? So it has to come from something that has those capacities, that can impart those capacities. When I look out at the world around me, Aquinas says, uh, prior to his arguments for the existence of God, let me see if I can remember this quote. It's, it's not like a really fancy quote. It's like very um, choppy. But it's, uh, when the effect is greater, in the, when the effect is greater, in, uh, when the effect is better known than the cause, from the effect we proceed to knowledge of the cause. And he's, he's reflecting on Romans 1.20, that we see effects around us and we can work backwards to the cause, just like a doctor does. So um, when we look out at the world, we see all of these things, right? We, we see all these material entities that exist, right? And we realize that none of them exist by the necessity of their own being. They could not exist. They came to be and they'll go out of existence. And you begin to wonder things like, well, is everything contingent? And you start to wonder that. Well, no, not everything can be contingent, right? Um, there would have to be an infinite regress of contingent things, each one of them causing the other. But then there would be no explanation for the infinite chain of contingent things. There must be a necessary thing responsible for the fact that there are contingent things. And we call that God, uh, a necessary being. I look out in the world, I see change, which is something that has a certain potential, which is actualized. That's what change is. And when we look at that, we say, things change. And everything that changes is changed by another. And if that thing too changes, it too is changed by another. But can that go on infinitely, each thing changing the other? Or must there be something for which it cannot in principle change, an uncaused cause, an unmoved mover? And we call that God. And we can think further with the intellect that if such a thing uh, exists, right, then there are certain characteristics. If something is purely actual and has no potentials, it's perfect, it's fully good. If something doesn't change, then it's also eternal. Um, and you can start to build characteristics of what we call God, right? And the intellect is able to do this. It can peer into all of material reality and transcend all of it, right? Um, we should marvel at that. That's amazing, right? So that's the human being. And because of those capacities, we have infinite worth and dignity. Now, there are two objections to that. So one of the objections is that, well, what about 
my patient who I mentioned who has severe intellectual impairment, does that, do they not have a rational soul? I mean, she can't do those things. But the Thomistic um, tradition holds that every single human being from, con from conception onward has a rational soul. It's just the rational soul cannot fully manifest if there's either an immaturity of the material constituents or if um, there's damage to those material constitu constituents, then those capacities that the human person has in regards to having a rational soul cannot manifest because damage or immaturity of the matter, because it's one aspect, not, it's, it's two aspects of one thing. These are not two separate substances, okay? So that's one thing, but the other objection I agree with. The other objection is that it's somewhat of a reduction still, because you never go and say, oh, you know what, I met a beautiful rationality today, or I, I came across this wonderful free will, right? We can't be reduced to those capacities. So the Catholic Church has expanded on those things, especially recently. So um, you see in John Paul II, as well as in um, Pope Benedict XVI, that there's more to this, that we're rational beings, uh, or that we're relational beings. So I think here, I have but uncles and aunts here, we're in relation to one another, but I'm in relation to all of you in some way. Everything in nature is related to something else, okay? But human beings have these deep bonds and relationship with family and friends, right? Um, and this is part of what it is to be human, just like it's part of being God. God is a trinity, a communion of three persons in one, okay? That's part of our being made in the image of God as well. And then in addition to that, each person is unique, Okay? Each person is, is one of a kind. Um, my wife and I have been reflecting on the Eucharist, um, which is a, um, an, something within uh, that Catholics believe, the real presence of um, Christ in the Eucharist. I was reflecting on um, Isaiah uh, 55, 10 through 11, and it, it says, um, As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish that which I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Um, this idea of divine speech, that when I, I'm describing things up here, I'm not making anything, I'm not speaking anything into existence, I'm just describing things, right? But God's speech is performative. When God says, let there be light, there's light. When he says, um, let there be dry land, there's dry land. Um, and Jesus, uh, being uh, the perfect image of God, also has this productive speech. When he looks at water and he says, be wine, it becomes wine. Um, he's able to, to do, little girl, rise, and she rises. And when he says, this is my body and this is my blood, it is his body and it's his blood. He has the power of performative speech, Okay. Um, but in the same way, each person in this room, he said, let there be your name, and there was. So each person is thought and loved into existence, and that too adds to the infinite dignity of the human person. We have free will. We can choose between good and evil. We're moral agents. We're responsible. So we have this free will, which has this rich concept which goes beyond any studies within neuroscience in which people flick their wrist or flick their finger and somehow that's a study on free will. It's absurd. Um, but it's a deep kind of rooted capacity within our rational nature to act or not act, to deliberate on what's best and then follow through on it with an act of the will. It takes fortitude, courage, prudence, wisdom. And it, as the Catechism says, attains perfection when directed toward God, our beatitude, our highest good. We think about concepts of freedom, of I can choose these shoes or those shoes or this thing on Amazon or that thing on Amazon. We have, we have freedom from constraint. But some of the most, ex I mean, the, the examples within kind of the Christian faith of freedom is so different, so much more rich. You think of something like St. Lawrence, who was roasted to death, right? They tied him to a grill. And um, you know what he said as he's tied? I mean, how no one could think that he would be free, tied down to a grill. He said, uh, as he was burning alive, he said, turn me over, I'm done on this side. That's freedom, right? That's freedom. Um, when we think of someone like St. Maximilian Kolbe, um, who 
while in the concentra uh, concentration camps, he was a, a Catholic priest, and they were getting ready to do executions, and they called a man forward who said, no, not me, I have a family and daughter, uh, all this stuff, and Maximilian Kolbe steps forward and he says, I'm a Catholic priest, take me. Um, that's freedom. That can't be studied in the lab. So these are mere brushstrokes, an attempt to approach the mystery of the human person. We're rational, we're unique, we're relational, we're free, and we're responsible for the decisions that we make. We are made of body and soul as one unified substance, one person created in the image of God. In regards to our dignity, if you gathered every material thing in this universe, if you gathered the moon and the stars and the galaxies, if you gathered all of those things, all the impressive equipment at Johns Hopkins, the buildings, all of these things, every single material thing in the entire universe, and you weighed that, it would be found wanting to the least of us human beings in regard to dignity. Okay? And this is a very lofty view of the human person, very lofty. But this is the Catholic way. This is the way of Catholic anthropology. This is what it means to follow Christ and to love our neighbor. That's all I have. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.